Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, starring Sean Connery, Shane West, Stuart Townsend, and Peter Wilson. Written by James Dell Robinson, based on the graphic novel The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill, and directed by Stephen Norrington. Stephen Norrington should be somewhat familiar to you. This is the last film he ever made by his own choice, but this is the man that also directed Blade. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, so he, yeah, just, we'll get into the ins and outs of why, but yeah, welcome back to Rice Smile Films. We are going to be wrapping up this questionable cask of summer movie hall of shame and the last two weeks have been a doozy and we'll see if this one continues that trend from 2003 the league of extraordinary gentlemen on paper a pretty good idea like conceptually and i think this is an idea that speaks to to us and our love of superheroes and teams and team up movies whether it's wild bunch or, or anything like that and just drawing from characters that we all know from classic literature. There's no shortage of choices that. Mm -hmm. So what you need to come up with is a way to assemble a team sure. that highlights all of the characters and their strengths. Mm -hmm. And I know we're going to get into that because this can be a little bit repetitive. But I think to say that this was a blueprint for how a team dynamic and an ensemble piece could be looked at and maybe used as a measuring stick in what didn't work mm -hmm. because essentially the first Avengers film is similar in some regards mm -hmm. and doesn't suffer from any of the things that this suffers from. Yeah. And mostly that's just difference between characters. We're going to get into that. Sounds good. But yeah, a uh, nice blueprint to start with a wildly popular series from a writer that's met with a lot of different opinions even in the room yeah um, like i think watchman's not good yeah i don't know how you feel about that and i don't really care for v, Ven v for vendetta either. i like watchman the graphic novel the film not so much yeah i didn't care for either of those but i did really enjoy both this first graphic novel and the second one lxg2 um, do you like a killing joke yeah like that yeah and then alan moore had some nice stuff with swamp thing so mm -hmm. it's it's a real mixed bag of I also of, like from hell oh yeah i think that one's pretty good that film suffers too from in its adaptation as well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting fella to say the least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he reminds me of Philip K. Dick and just kind of like that, like kind of just like all over the place kind of nature. But he's so opinionated and he notoriously hates everything that's been adapted of his works. <laughs> kind of notoriously hates everything. Yeah. Just very, very jaded. Mm -hmm. And it comes through in his writing. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the popular fiction comic book wise during this period and we'll talk a little about him and uh, frank miller and the impact that they think they had on sure, an 80s version of anti-hero sounds good so more weller uh antique uh 107 yeah excellent mm -hmm. i like this one i think this is the first time we've ever had weller yeah on the show or outside of the show so this is this is a pretty good one i think we have an, another bottle of that here to open up here well we have plenty of bottles of bourbon to be able to, to be going through for the next few months well stocked so let's get right into the flight question so 
It's very pleasant. Well, uh, so I usually try and get the some interlude music from the movie. That's on the soundtrack. I don't know what that's from in the movie. Is that when they're? Is that the? It's the opening sequence. To the Snow African, White, isn't the, it? the African bar. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I think it's in the bar that uh, quarter mains, and maybe that's playing on the the record player or whatever. Right. I don't know. That's bizarre. Uh, speaking about this, is the first time we're talking about Sean Connery. We were supposed to talk about him months ago. Oh yeah, but um, here he comes up for the first time in a in this film. So Matt, I don't necessarily have like want to do like a top list, but when I say Sean Connery, what's like the first thing that like comes to your mind when well, thinking about him? Bond, obviously. Well, that's a big one for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh. I think he's had a very interesting career and like that's nearly 50 plus years long. Uh, someone who started in bodybuilding, like, like, like Mr. Olympus, like bodybuilding interesting. and from, from Scotland, obviously. And he's just traversed such a wide range of film genre, whether it's a war film, Darby O'Gill and the little people bond. I, I try, I think, uh, go ahead. Marnie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marnie. Yeah, that's that's a definite turn right there. <laughs> yeah. And even films like The Untouchables, which is uh, he's pretty uh, well regarded for as the role of Sam Malone. And whether it's uh, Henry Jones Sr. I always think of Sean Connery, too, in this kind of weird forgotten period of his, which is like late 70s, like early 80s. Matt, have you ever seen a film called Zardoz? Yes. Yeah. If if you haven't seen, you know you've seen a picture of him in his little kind of like mankini uh, outfit. That's like I don't even know what you call that. It's like almost like it's like a bikini, but like wrapped around his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's like a quasi like sidequel to like the Wizard of Oz. Like that's a weird movie. Yeah, uh, I think of that one in Outland. I haven't seen Outland. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one he did in, the, in that period called Meteor, which was... I was going to mention Meteor. Meteor is a period of disaster movies. So he's had such an interesting kind of just career in general. Like you said, obviously, you think of Bond. But um, do you are you a fan of Sean Connery as an actor? <sighs> I think with a pretty limited range, Yes. I feel like he's been playing the elder statesman, wise sage for the better part of Mm -hmm. a generation or maybe two. Highlander? Even like Finding Forrester. Finding Forrester. He's just all time bandits Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. You know, we're getting. Oh, I forgot about time bandits. A little obscure here. So I think in that space, like Last Crusade, right? Mm -hmm. He plays that elder, wise sage that's. If Harrison Ford was 20 years older in every movie he made, even like the Presidio, Jesse, consider mm, the that. Presidio, Because yeah. that's Patriot Games. Mm-hmm. He would be Sean Connery. Yeah. So that's a long answer to, I can't say that I love him. I can say he's effective in a very con air singular space that he's pretty good at. Mm-hmm. There's a moment, you know, a few moments where he sort of steps out of it, like namely Marnie comes to mind. That's just such a strange film. And I hope someday maybe we talk about that because it would be worth, yeah, you know, exploring early sexual thriller kind of sort of stories. Mm-hmm. Like him, I, I guess. I, I Sure. Yeah. Do you like him? I do. 
but he he plays old elderly like pretty well. Like he has a good look to him. I think it's kind of I think it's because his eyebrows are still like black and his voice and his voice. Yeah, and the voice really kind of comes to as well. He has that, and I think that that's why he was such a natural fit as Bond. Like he does have a nice natural, especially back then, like a nice on-screen presence, mm-hmm. a charisma, a very Cary Grantish of uh, if of sorts. So I think that carries that carries the the persona of Sean Connery uh, a lot of the way. And I thought he did play yeah the the role of yeah Henry Jones uh, Senior in a uh, last crusade uh, pretty well. Like you, Harrison Ford is the perfect comparison to him. Like those guys have had very similar careers. If you ask me <laughs> yeah, uh, to an extent there. So it's kind of natural fitting that they'd play father and son in that, in that particular film. There's even, God, I think it's young Christian Slater. Is it in the name of the Rose? Mm, mm-hmm. Again, same kind of role. Um, I think he's <clears throat> maybe an elderly monk. Mm-hmm. And not. um, He's kind of playing so like in he, that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entrapment, Catherine Zeta Jones. Right, he um. Right. So this is the last film he was in. He decided, and you can kind of tell watching this film. This is a man who's just like, it doesn't look like he wants to be making movies anymore. He looks bored to to an extent. Yeah. And he retired. And I swear to God, I think like the person that like picked up the Sean Connery roles was Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Very fair. Yeah. Started playing those exact same parts, whether it's like the Legend of Zorro or Mask of Zorro, the, the, those type of roles that Connery would normally play. Mm-hmm. But I'm a fan of the guy, and hopefully we get to talk about his turn at Bond here pretty soon. But uh, yeah, we we're talking about the last film that he he ever made, and he did stick to his guns. Like he says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with Hollywood, and he really literally hasn't made anything since. Yeah, Just living life, just enjoying life. Good for him. Yeah. Better than just trying to keep on and like not have your heart into it. If he goes down as whatever Sean Connery is in people's minds, it's not that there's going to be a shortage of memorable movies that he made. We just rattled off Highlander 2, The Quickening. Right. (laughs) That's a joke. And he he might be, he might be a little typecast. Yeah. And so what? Mm -hmm. I mean, if your typecast is Bond and then Elder Statesman or Wise Sage. Yeah, that's a good career. Yeah, what? right? That's fine. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> good good for Sean Connery. Yeah. You get you get and then uh imitation's the most sincere form of flattery, and they do a hell of an impersonation of him on Saturday Night Live with Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> Suck a Trebek. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's pretty good. When you said think of Sean Connery, that's sometimes my mind gravitates towards that first. Excellent. Well I'd like to sit at a bar yeah. with Neil Diamond and Sean Connery with the stories and be regaled in the tales of debauchery that the two of them can tell waking up in a puddle of their own sick and <laughs> three Vietnamese prostitutes. And I just, there, it would just be such a, a grand tale of, a, of <clears throat> excess. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be pretty good. Maybe we should set that up. <laughs> set up Sean Connery and Neil Diamond. Call your people. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Well, cheers. Cheers. Excellent. Well, let's dive right into this thing and talk about the league of extraordinary gentlemen. Or legendary. Their origins are unknown. Their methods are extreme. But when our future is at stake, they'll be the world's last hope. 
Isn't that such a late 90s, early 2000s trailer? <laughs> Boy, yeah. <laughs> they don't make them. They don't make them like that anymore. No. Yeah, that was interesting. The other you mentioned, and you mentioned it uh, just a second ago. LXG two, like the abbreviation of this uh, concept is, they really tried to market it as LXG, like, like, like initials. It's, it sounds like Jim Mc or Vince McMahon wrestling to oh, me. Oh yeah, right. E X E X G L X G. Yeah. So this film starts out and. We are introduced to the bad guy of sorts here, the Phantom, and he's his plans interesting to say the least, in that it's very confusing and I don't think it really makes a whole lot of sense. But he's he's trying to start a, a new conflict, right? They keep talking about the big war, and I keep thinking they're talking about World War One, which is at least fourteen years away, right? And he's and it's very steampunky, very. Everything's tanks and metal of, of of what they're what they're after these plans because mm -hmm. isn't the 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 that beginning break seeing this is what doesn't make any sense to me is they break into this vault here at the beginning and still the blueprints of the Venice canals and kind of how how deep they go and then later on the villain says Venice was uh, a ruse a ruse. <laughs> um. So I think we're led to believe when this tank rolls through <clears throat> this city quarter town, I don't even know what the hell it is, block in London, and come into the unfortunate Keystone cops that get just smashed by this thing, that we're on to something bigger, but it's essentially a heist. Mm -hmm. So, And the heist is, let's take this big machine and just knock down the door. And then we'll just take the stuff. And so among the jewels and the cash that's stolen, one of the other things that's pilfered is the blueprints that, is it Da Vinci? Yes. Has drawn of Venice. Mm -hmm. Like the under. And that's picked up with the line, and some things are priceless. So the blueprints of Venice are priceless. Okay, so you're setting up, I guess we're going to attack Venice, so maybe this is, let's steal some Renaissance art, or, you know, there's a lot of places once you start getting into Italy that you can yeah. take this. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that kind of gets hijacked, right? And we go from <laughs> that to, like, the VFW or the Elks Club in Africa with... <laughs> the VFW. Right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. This well inhabited by 15 Alan Quartermain looking exactly in the same attire individuals. Mm -hmm. And so right now you already have to be at a place where you're kind of scratching your head saying, what in the exact hell is going on? What's this movie about? So let me ask you a question. Okay. Does the time, I know the time period has to fit the characters. Yeah. But with the technology that's available and the steampunk look. Yeah. Is that armored tank a mistake to use as the biggest, baddest gun in the block? Would you prefer to see something else? Are you okay with this tank being essentially the inciting incident for the bad guy? I guess so. Does it fit for you? It fits the the, the look that they're going for. Like they're, they're they're definitely going for that type of 
the steam and rivets and because it's Nemo ship looks the same way. Mm-hmm. So if they have a certain style of how they want to design the craft, I think that works. I would just think people would be more shocked if they were seeing 1899. I don't know when the tank was invented, but I think it was a few a few years away. And the automobile. Right. I think these people would be flipping out at seeing this stuff in the street, especially when Nemo rolls up in the Nautilus mobile. Those people that, that obviously are around in their horse-drawn carriages would be like, what, what is that thing? And we just, we just keep it going on with the movie. So to answer your question, I think it does work for me, but I don't know if the villain's plan necessarily works for me. I think you just hit on what's troubling me already. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to the reveal of who the villain is in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that villain is absolutely brain and not brawn. Yeah. And that initial stealing sequence done by the Phantom, which is a Doctor Doom-like bad guy. Are they going for like a Phantom of the Opera thing? Meets Doctor Doom. Yeah. Who's scarring behind there and is done through brawn. That tank is just this big brawny machine that knocks down whatever is in front of them. Mm -hmm. That is not when we get to the reveal of who the villain is. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to choose these characters from classic literature, you're going to choose them with the traits the author's imbued them Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. and the main bad guy is not imbued with brawn and that as the movie unfolds for me that tank becomes more a blister than it becomes (laughs) a salve sure um so i don't know let's go to let's go to the vfw shootout (laughs) shall we (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so alan quartermain just has all these decoys in the thing Why? i don't know people are after him i don't know a lot about alan quartermain i know he's like an indiana jones of king solomon's minds like that's like his big right. thing right wasn't there that wasn't there like a series of alan quarter quartermain movies with um steve richard, richard chamberlain in like the 80s oh yeah, yes the, there were there's like matter of fact one of them was called king, king Solomon. solomon's minds yeah. you're absolutely right so i don't know a whole lot about the guy and Okay, so here's another interesting thing, because most of the, the kind of characters in this, other than Tom Sawyer, who's just kind of thrown into this movie for whatever sake, are kind of villainous, you know what I mean? Right. Like Vampire, uh, Invisible Man's kind of a bad, Jack, uh, Jack, that's kind of a bad, Nemo's kind of the bad guy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're going for an, and since I don't know much, I think Quartermain's supposed to be some type of here. Are they going for an all-villain literary team or like just like just literary characters because then that just doesn't jive for me so much either yeah okay um let's talk uh, that's a great setup okay alan moore and his infatuation with the anti-heroes and this isn't ben braddock mike nichols anti-hero this is he and frank miller in the middle of reagan era 1980 cops and forthrightness and righteousness Big middle finger to the establishment, satirical, hater, angry anti-heroes. I think what he's trying to do is take those anti-heroes and make them Alan Moore-like creations. The problem with those are, maybe short of Mina. Again, I don't know if these, none of these characters are Boy Scouts, like you said. Yeah. I don't know if there's enough anti-hero traits at that period that they were written to play with his sense of what the anti-hero should look like in order to quell or sate his own desire to show that on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so you get essentially two two anti-heroes in this movie. 
you get the science element and you get <laughs> yeah, a lot of science element. And, right. And then you get the ruggish uh, swashbuckler. Yeah, yeah that's perfect. That, yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. All of the characters in this film boil down into, I, I guess maybe Nemo's a little no, different. No, 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 no. He, he might be he, technology. He, no, he's ruggish swashbuckler. Okay, yeah, he kind of is though, right? He's like a pirate. You have the so, science and you have the swashbuckling pirate types. Yeah. Okay, so Dorian Grain's kind of swashbuckling too with his saber. <laughs> right. Yeah. So my question then, not to you, but just to pose maybe rhetorically, is could there have been a better selection of heroes? And you know, I threw around a couple names. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefactor, who we're gonna find out is a character named M that sort of puts the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen together. James Bond's boss. <laughs> which is strange. <laughs> yeah, that, that they did. M, I, they had to have done it on purpose, and it must have made Sean Connery chagrin like so much. He must have been like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" <laughs> they could have just used his first name, isn't it, James? Yeah, Moriarty. Yeah. Okay, so big reveal. Yeah. Here it is. The bad guy is Moriarty, not Brawny. That's mm-hmm. a brainy bad guy. Like so the, the tank like doesn't the Rid- fit. He's like the Riddler. Well said. Yeah. Um, you could have used a benefactor if you're using classic literature. Why not? This is going to sound weird, but go with the thought process. Maybe this isn't the best choice. Yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge, because then that makes sense for like a heist element. Yeah. Or. The characters that then you use. We talked about, okay, so Mina is like sex pot chemist vampire. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even make sense. And I would argue she's probably the most capable of any of them, maybe Hyde. But now we're looking at classic monster series. Why isn't the the expanse of characters to include like a Hester Prynne? If you want to go with sex pot, get Hester Prynne. I just think that they have so many character choices they could have used. And these aren't even bad ones. Yeah. We don't read Alan Quartermain, but obviously the staple <laughs> of literature. Yeah. They all devolve into two categories. Yeah, Victor Frankenstein could have been another one. Right. Yeah. Well, what it boils down to is there are just too many chemists in the too many chemists in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and how many chemists do you need in nineteen hundred for a bank heist? Well, film? I don't think Mina's even a chemist in Dracula. She's just Jonathan Harker's chick fiance right. that gets infatuated with Dracula. If anything, Van Helsing's more of a chemist with the blood transfusion and everything, so there's another one. That was one that came to mind, too, is maybe the brains of the group would be Van Helsing. Yeah, that could have been interesting. But then you also have uh, Dr. Jekyll, another chemist, Yeah, with his formulas, which we got to talk about him in a second because his portrayal is interesting. So, yeah, so the, we get the shootout at the, the at this lodge here, this, uh, this British lodge, and the Phil Coulson element <laughs> right. comes to recruit Alan Quartermain. He's like, I ain't fighting for queen and country anymore. I already did that. I played bond six times, but then these guys show up, I guess they, they, they found out. And, but then this guy's working for M two. Right. We got to talk about it right now because there's, I don't understand the plot of the nefarious mm-hmm. villain or Dr. Doom type. Who's kind of going about recruiting Quartermain. He brings him to London after this shootout we see how proficient Quartermain is with uh, with the rifle, but he is showing some age. He has to put his glasses on, all that. He goes and meets uh, M. Moriarty in his library. So he's putting, he's like, we need to put the team together. War is on our doorsteps, and whether it affects you now, it will affect you later. He's the bad guy. Why in God's name would you want to put together a team of fairly efficient individuals to stop you? 
I've I this this isn't the only movie that does this. There's plenty of other films and comic books that rely on this trope of the bad guys, the element that brings the team together. I think that is just so stupid. Okay, you said it really well earlier. Then. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, the Riddler is that bad guy. The Riddler serves as the sword sharpener for Batman's detective capabilities. Mm -hmm. And mostly then it's just a battle of ego. The ego of the Riddler is his downfall over and over. He just wants to prove to himself and everybody he's smarter than Batman. Yeah. Moriarty in this film has a Batman. Mm -hmm. It's Sherlock Holmes. He's not in this film. Yeah. So then Moriarty assembling a team so that he can... Now, there is a piece that's going to involve Dorian Gray and some of the DNA of Mina and Hyde and the Invisible Man and I'm forgetting someone else in there. You don't need to assemble a team to do that. Just have them have Dorian Gray be your agent of blood stealing. Right. To create some serum that they then can launch his own army with. So is he creating a team so that he can steal the DNA to make Super Soldier or is he creating a team so that he can prove to himself in the world that he's smarter than Alan Quartermain, who, by the way, isn't a brainiac. He's just a crack shot with a rifle. Mm -hmm. If you all are scratching your head and sort of coming to this place like, that doesn't really make sense, then join the club. Because <laughs> that's where we are, too. Mm -hmm. And what's frustrating about it, I think you have good source material to work I with. Definitely, Those are nice so. characters. Really good, yeah. Just used very poorly. And then at the end of the film, when Moriarty's like literally complaining that his base is being taken over and destroyed, I was like, well, you put this together. I don't know what you're yammering about now. Right. This is your fault. What did you expect? Yeah. It's almost as bad as the villain that's going to destroy the world to rule over rubble. Exactly. It's Yeah, those, those two villain tropes are, man, I got no time for those. Yeah. Because I'm just saying... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't snap on that till you said it when you said, I don't understand why this guy's creating this team to undo all of the work he's trying to build. Exactly. <laughs> it's, I, you're like, you're right. Yeah. And then it just sort of devolves into a little bit of mindless Superman kind of action buildings coming down with little consequence. So let's talk about the first little action bit that comes up here. So we have a team of Mina, Harker... Captain Nemo, Alan Quartermain, and Skinner. <laughs> Who's the Invisible Man. Yeah, they, they couldn't get the rights to Griffin and H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. So that in turn ruins this character for the most part because he... Is the rights a universal issue or is that an H.G. Nah, Wells issue? It's an H.G. Wells issue, yeah. Isn't Doc, Jekyll and Hyde H.G. Wells though too? That's Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, yeah. H.G. Wells is a time machine. Yeah. So he, I think he has a better lock grip on the rights to his stuff than okay. some of these other characters. But it in turn makes this character kind of useless because he can't be the chemist element because he's just a thief because he stole the original Invisible Man serum. And then he disappears for about 40 minutes of the movie. To little, like Electro? <laughs> like Electro. <laughs> Maybe a little worse than at least we see Electro. Right. You can't see the Invisible Man, though. He's kind of a, a worthless character in this in this entire film. So we have the, the the four of them, and then we go to Dorian Gray's shack because I guess he's another member that they want to recruit, the Immortal Man. Let me stop you there because I want to ask you, and maybe you can uh, put this together for Rye Nation. Mm -hmm. Let's, let me rattle off the characters, and you tell me, and it's done in the movie, what trait they bring to the team. 
Okay. So Quartermain is the yeah the the, the gunsmith okay. guy. Mina is the chemist vampire. Okay. Gray is the swashbuckling pretty boy. <laughs> yeah, but they say like experience is the title they give him. Okay. Um, we haven't really met Tom Sawyer yet, so he's not. Well, there. he's the gun guy too. He will be. Nemo. Except, okay, so they make a big deal about Tom Sawyer being like a crack shot with the gun. I don't think he kills anybody in this movie except for the bad guy at the end. Right. He right. He does a lot of shooting just to miss. And no hitting. Yeah. And then so Nemo is... The swashbuckling... We, we joked that he was kind of like the Batman element. He pays for the transportation. <laughs> yeah, they give him these weird titles. Like, we have Thief as Skinner. We have... I don't even know what remember what the hell Nemo was. Uh, we have whatever the hell title they gave Quartermain. And then we have Chemist, which is Harker. And then we have, like, the title they give Gray, the role they give Gray and the team, literally in the film over a monologue is experience. Mm -hmm. These characters are all centuries, years, right? right? Old. they're all old. So they're trying. They're trying to do what the Avengers does. Mm -hmm. They're trying to have, like, the brawn and the brains and the... uh, armaments and the vehicles and the, the, mm-hmm. but <laughs> that all just goes away because I don't know if it's lazy writing or lazy character development because they all just turn into gun wielding or test tube wielding <laughs> test tube wielding. characters. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's no differentiation. We've talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Ghostbusters does it really well. Each yep. one of those four guys has a role. Yep. Hangover. Each one of those guys has a role. Mm-hmm. These guys all serve the same purpose in this film. <laughs> yeah, literally. You fall into one of two camps. You're either grab a test tube or grab a rifle. Amen. Or a sword in, in Nemo and Dorian Gray's case. We should, <laughs> I, yeah, it's just such a bastardization of what they tried to set up. Mm-hmm. All right, so I, no, st- well, I stole what you were saying. I, well, I took you off track. Well, there. I Sorry. asked you on the show, because like, the show Penny Dreadful kind of covers very similar. There's there's a Dorian Gray, uh, uh, Frankenstein, like those elements. There's like a werewolf element in that. So I think it handles a lot of this kind of, these ideas are just a little bit better. It wasn't until, I've seen this film a few times before, and it wasn't until this where I was like, yeah, everyone's kind of really cookie cutter in, in there. And it really suffers in the second act because we just spend all this time on the ship with characters that are all the same. <laughs> you know, the one thing you brought up about Skinner being gone for 40 minutes and made the stupid joke about he was there, you just couldn't see him because he's invisible. Yeah. And they actually play that in the film out a little bit. The one saving grace with that character, let's go back to Hollow Man. Mm-hmm. What was distracting in that movie, and if I remember right, I think we even discussed it, at least I did, I hope was how distracting what you could see inside his body would be. Like when he ate the food, you could see it in his stomach. And like, and the way they chose to show what was invisible as semi-visible ended up being distracting, whether it was that plaster shit that they poured over his head or... <clears throat> I really thought when Skinner put... I haven't seen this movie in... Mm-hmm. When did it come out? 2003. Okay, since then... When Skinner put on that makeup, I was really worried, like, oh, man, here we go, American Hustle all over again. Like, the plunging neckline distraction from everything. I'm going to be taken out of every scene because I'm just going to look at that Mm -hmm. coat and that hat and the glasses and the makeup. I will say, for me, that was a saving grace because I didn't have to be distracted by 
trying so hard to familiarize myself with what the Invisible Man looked like via makeup and jacket. So I want to thank Alan Moore and the directors and the producers of this film for not distracting me from <laughs> this very I thought he looked stellar a- plot. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he looked all right. He did. With his little hat and his duster and his five o'clock shadow. Yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. I agree. Because it makes it made like the facial features pop a little bit more. But when so we have this great I don't know if it's great. <laughs> this this gunfight sequence and it's the introduction of Tom Sawyer. And again, the villain showing up to the meeting of the team, like that was bizarre. Mm-hmm. And uh the invisible man, when when he push comes to shove, he just has to like take his coat off and douse his makeup, and he can only like use a book. Like that's his weapon of choice. Yeah. Like he becomes a pretty uh, like not very helpful member of this of this team. When arguably he could be the linchpin like, of the team. Exactly. The stealth element, that's what they give him is stealth. There you go. The stealth element could be big, 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 big. Mm-hmm. And then we get this, man, there's there's a lot of cringy dialogue in, in this. It's just, I, 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 a lot of the dialogue's just so on the nose. It's like a setup for a one-liner. Yeah. And this is the one we get right here. Dorian just been shot like 50 times and to kind of hammer home the thing that he can't be killed because of like the longevity of his painting. Yeah. We get like that kind of dialogue. The worst, the worst line though was when they're fighting in the room at the end and he stabs, he's like, I had wanted the chance to nail you one more time. I didn't know it'd be literally like, Oh my, like my skin would crawl if I typed that in a computer. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's tacky. Awful. (laughs) It's really tacky. What else is tacky is the use of this casting as this guy. This Mm -hmm. is the B as much as Shane West is the B minus Timothy Oliphant in this movie. Oh, good. This dude is the D minus Johnny Depp in this film. He literally looks like every character Johnny Depp ever plays. That's funny that you brought up Johnny Depp. So I have a funny story of when this film came out. So it came out the same day as Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl, the first one. Bad weekend. Uh, and I like the I like the first one a little bit. It's all the secret. It just got too much pirate. Too much pirate. Uh, no such thing. And my family, we were trying to say, what, what do you want to go see this weekend in? I think Pirates of the Caribbean is probably my favorite ride at 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 Disney Disneyland. I just I can just sit there over and over again. So I was really looking forward to seeing that. So we made the decision of that over to League of Extraordinary and we rented it like later that fall when it came out and well enjoyable as like a kid. It has enough to kind of offer, but then like when you look like yeah, there's not a lot to come back to with this particular. Really film. well said, right? <laughs> like I could never just like watch this continually. To me, there's not a lot of replay value in it. And I wonder what a lot of that that's too. I mean, they spent $78 million making that like. My God. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And it's not in that good range of like either do it low budget or blow it out. It's kind of like in that middle-ish range <laughs> a little bit of troubling. Go ahead. I was going to say this earlier when I was talking about the like the brawny tank. I think a a more interesting 
way to tell the story would have been using the cerebral capabilities of the characters instead of the technology that really isn't up to speed with even 2000 anything. Steampunk, single shot Winchester rifles doesn't play in an era where science fiction is having wormholes and ray guns. It, it yeah, just yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it feels tame. Mm-hmm. What never feels tame is being able to outwit your opponent. Like that plays in any era because it's more action through thought than it is brawn through action. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, as you just said that, $78 million is a lot for this film. And it's in, like you said, that really bad price range, yeah. like 40 to like 90 is curtains. Actually, anything under over five is curtains, but you know, yeah, it will yeah. get that's a, anyway. Yeah. Um, they probably could have done this after the 20 million they paid Sean Connery for another 15 <laughs> if they had just let this been a battle of all of these intellects. And I think that also plays to Moriarty's strengths mm-hmm. more. Oh, definitely. Instead, it didn't go that way. It's like the production team said, we need a bit more gunfire here and we need a couple buildings to come down. So. Let's steampunk this down with machine guns. Brute strength and force and rivets. And then you also said it too, and maybe this is the lead in, and maybe I'm taking us way off track. Go ahead. The Jekyll and Hyde character. Oh, yeah, let's get to him. He's not Hulk. He's a ghoul. (laughs) He's not Hulk. Right? Jekyll is a ghoul. Okay, so I've I've wondered this for a while. So after this fisty cuffs battle scene and the team assembles and they get on... uh, Nemo's Nautilus ship, which is gigantic. It's like a submarine cruise ship. Sword. Yeah, the Sword of the Sea, I think is what he calls it. Yeah. And so they get on, they got to go to Paris now because they got to get one more member of the team. Uh, Dr. Dr. Jekyll and, and Mr. Hyde. I don't know what, at what point this happened in history, but I always assume whether it's John Barrymore or Frederick March, or I think even Spencer Tracy played him, the yep. character too. Right. He's just like a, like a, a a ghoul with the top hat and he's just like almost kind of werewolf, but not quite there. Uh, I always kind of thought that was a betrayal. Now around this time, he turned into this like hulking brutish thing. Cause in he, even in Van Helsing, it, right? I was just going to say and in Van Helsing, the opening scenes, him getting Jekyll and he looks the same. Yeah. You know what uh Hyde look, look like in this one. Uh, uh, there's a, Great episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where SpongeBob really wants to go to the local like muscle beach, but he's got his little twig arms. So he gets this pair of like inflatable pink muscles that he has to with the tube like inflate them. Yeah. <laughs> and he keeps inflating them to the point of like ridiculousness where they eventually pop. Like that's what this guy's arms look like. They look like inflatable, ridiculous like arms. And I don't even know if like him himself necessarily looked fairly interesting well because it looks really poorly done with the cgi on this screen it looks like animation Mm -hmm. it's not as bad as the animals singing and dancing around mary poppins in that film like live animation inside the live film but it's not far from it i'd probably rather have that (laughs) and again it goes back to what dr jekyll and henry hyde is Dr. Jekyll and Henry Hyde do the same thing that werewolves do. Yeah. Upon transformation, all that that is repressed comes out and you get to carry it out. 
that plays in this film. If they're all gentlemen, mm -hmm. then what Henry Hyde offers is the moral or the lack of morality to do that, which the other team members wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. So instead of going the brawny route again, which is a problem for me, this whole film tanks, brawny, 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 play it out a little bit more cerebral and it's going to look better. And then you get that ridiculous hide Hulk thing. Professor Hulk. <laughs> right. Kind of like that out of it. Cause you can make that Dr. Jekyll guy into a ghoul pretty easily. Mm -hmm. You just darken the teeth, give him some circles around the rings, around the eyes, put on the top hat and we're there. Instead, they just went this other way. So we're on the ship now and they spend a lot. <laughs> it's pretty great. They have this like astrolabe, like globe thing that they're trying to get to Venice and, and track and whatever. And they're like, you're like, that's about the 15th time they showed that globe and I could, I could care less. Oh yeah. <laughs> the globe to help them navigate. Doesn't, do you think we spend too much time on the ship here at this this point of the film? They need a base. I'll give them that. Yeah, they need a base. I think a, a helicarrier, right? It's very it's mobile uh, of sorts. Avengers Tower, like they need a base. Like I get that. And I think for the most part, a scene like this could work. Where we fall into the trap is what you said so well a second ago. Is all these characters are just too similar? So there's like. <laughs> There's the scene of Quartermain uh, shooting buoys out on, on the deck before they submerge, and he's trying to teach Tom Sawyer how to shoot. And they have this... <laughs> I think I have a, a, a clip of that here. You have to feel the shot. Take your time with it. You have all the time you need. All the time in the world. Take your... Too soon. But that was bloody close. And at 500 yards, too. So immediately after this, he says, do it again. And then Tom Sawyer says, he's like, he's like is this how you taught your son how to, how to shoot? To which Quartermain's response is, I'm leaving and I'm going back into the ship. So that's talking about guns and his son is a no-go. And you said, there's character development for you, but man, that's poor. I guess that's what we're supposed to get is that Quartermain is raising Tom Sawyer as his son. And that's why they're so similar. <clears throat> I guess. Yeah. Okay. That, right. I'm with you. That doesn't sound interesting at all. I don't care about his family. And then and I don't get that from Tom Sawyer. Like I don't No. Then you're just like a riverboat boy. You almost have to ask yourself, why is Tom Sawyer even chosen for this team? Yeah. Or did he just luck into it being in the right place at the right time? I'll tell you why it was a studio note. They needed some youth appeal. So they threw him in here and the producer was like, I don't understand it. We're just doing it. Really? So now you're a filmmaking by committee. Like that's a that, that's not a good reason to add an additional character that's already similar to another one. Youth Did, youth quota. Ay, ay, ay. Can I tell you a funny story about Tom Sawyer? Please. You know you know the teacher. I won't I won't say his name, but mm -hmm. uh, my junior year of high school. You know you're supposed to read a set number of books throughout. It was English class, so you know you're reading the classics. Uh, uh, you know. All the like James Fenimore Cooper and Shakespeare and all that stuff, but I guess yeah, junior years of the year maybe you're supposed to read Tom Sawyer and and this and that. So we're reading Tom Sawyer and we get about like a third of the way. And we're reading it as a class, one of those type of books, <clears throat> and the teacher just says, "Guys, just not feeling it this year. Yeah, go turn in your." <laughs> 
So we didn't even finish Tom Sawyer and we didn't finish any other novels the rest of the year. And I was like, I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to complain, but I've never had a teacher just like, we're like, the hell with this. We're halfway through the book and he's like, guys, I ain't feeling it. Go turn it in. That teacher's a very dear friend of mine. Doesn't teach at the school anymore, but to that teacher, JS, I love you. I love him too. Yeah, that was, that was a great class. Tom Sawyer, kiss his ass. Yeah, that, that's my that's my history with Tom Sawyer, a turned in book. Mm-hmm. But here, we're, yeah, just, just spending time tre- treading water with these characters to show test tubes. Yeah, Mina's making some formula, and that's not even told to us what she's really doing. We said, is she making trying to cure vampirism or trying to cure herself? And then we learn about this torrid love affair between her and Dorian Gray, which I guess kind of plays out at the end because she does him in. But you get that whole thing, and then and then and then this is where Skinner just disappears for forty minutes of the movie. Forty minutes, I think. Gone. Yeah. The film's in real interesting shape by the time we get to Venice. And I was gonna turn to you because once we land in Venice, as this gigantic ship somehow stealthily traverses the Venice canals with no one seeing it. And then they get off the ship and immediately I'm just like in confusion mode because everyone starts yelling and shouting out demands of what they need to do. And I don't even know what they really need to do. They're going to the center of the city, even though it's already exploding, they're already too late. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. And then, so they got to get to the center to launch another explosion there. Right, so they're going to try the the firefighting technique of burning it, like back burning it. So if, if these explosions in the city of Venice are like dominoes, they're going to kick the fifth domino up the road to stop all the dominoes from falling. But before we do that, I got to ask you a question. Okay. When we're on the ship yeah, and we're talking, so it's Quartermain and Sawyer mm-hmm. and it's Mina and Gray and it's Nemo and that weird god that he's praying to of death. Oh, and it, it remains to be said that Nemo's first mate is Ishmael from right. Moby Dick. Right. <laughs> Call me Ishmael. <laughs> right. Not Igor. That's like a throwaway line. I know. You would never know. And then I guess the other one would be, um, who am I missing? Jekyll. Kind of the battle with himself, like who's going to take over personality, him or Hyde. <clears throat> of all of those relationships, and I guess Nemo's out because no one cares about him and his relationship with his death god. Do you care about any of those and how those go? Not really. I don't either. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of time spent. Like, going. is the best one Mina and and Gray? I think it has the potential to be the best one, but they don't even like delve t- like too far into it. Right. There's a we get some hints like Sawyer better not ask Quartermain about his son, mm-hmm. and that there's a scorned, unrequited element between Gray and Mina. And whatever the hell's going on with Nemo, like literally no one cares because it's just a scene behind a door that he pulls before we see him finishing his sacrificial worshiping. It's sequence. a throwaway line, yeah. Man, and for as I hate to say this, but action packed as this movie tries to be, mm-hmm. boy, we are in the marshes of drudgery <laughs> it's at, a this slog point. at this point. Yep. Slogging mm-hmm. through just nonsense but then we get to venice and the action doesn't make any sense they just start driving and shooting and exploding and i'm like i I don't know what they're trying to do at all this is all just kind of a mess at this point and if nemo has that ship in that car Mm -hmm. got a pretty sweet looking batmobile like corvette i I, yeah i do like the their weapons like the nemo army 
they yeah. come out in like diver suits and they yeah. got these like chrome guns like that that aspect's pretty cool I just think they'd be ahead of a few little bombs placed here and there. I think with all of that technology and the astrolabe that uses fire and centrifugal force or whatever the hell it's working on, they'd be ahead of this, but they just can't quite well, the line get was, ahead of it. The line was really good there when they arrived. They're like, okay, we need to find the bombs. And then literally the next second they explode. We're too late. <laughs> so then we're like in this kind of crazy race at this point. This scene is is crazy, like like I can't get a bloody shot. Okay, take the will because I'm going to try not to get a bloody shot. And Tom Sawyer misses every one of his shots. And then, like, Mina leaves in this with this flurry of bats, which her power uh, tends to potentially pose more harm than good because when she theoretically be turning all these people into vampires. Right. <laughs> yes. I don't think that's a good power to have on your team. If you're tackling an entire army... I guess a vampire is effective in small pieces, but there's it takes a while to vamp somebody to death. Like the swarm of bats is a is a kind of like a cool idea. Yeah, but they don't. Okay, so she's potentially making their team stronger by turning them into immortals. The re- <laughs> right, the reason we're in Venice is there's going to be a meeting of the geopolitical minds of the time to prevent an in or upcoming world type disaster through warfare and we're led to believe at this point the phantom which is the dr doom scarred face later to be revealed moriarty is the weapons dealer that's going to supply both sides with plenty of armaments and make himself filthy rich okay that's kind of a believable trope jesse already talked about you know why he's going to assemble a team to undo all of this work but we come to find out as these bombs are going off in venice that they're too late and not only are they too late but none of it mattered anyway because they were never going to have this meeting of the geopolitical establishment diplomats anyway it's a ruse for what (laughs) to get them there to kill them because gray had at this point gray has already stolen the dna of those that matter to create super soldier serum We're spinning into a place of just nonsensical nonsense, nonsensical nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no way back. You're just watching pretty pictures on the screen as you stuff your face with popcorn. And that's not to say you can't make a movie that way, but it'd be nice if there was at least a through line in this. No. Yeah. Yeah. Quartermain's not teaching Sawyer how to be a better shot. We're not developing anything with Mina and Gray. And we're just getting action bits left and right with dialogue that you can barely hear because it's muffled by the sounds of the score and the guns and shit exploding around it. Mm-hmm. To where even if something monumental was being said in the heat of battle, you couldn't hear it anyway. Mm-hmm. I was really <laughs> struggling to hear the dialogue through the action bits in this. Yeah, it's just 
it's it's really over over overplayed by all the barrage of everything else. So the sum takeaway of this final battle in Venice mm-hmm. is Ahab has a really awesome boat that is about too ne- big to fit through. I mean Nemo, Nemo. sorry, <laughs> to fit through the canals. Yeah. He's got a sweet car and Mina's really powerful. And Skinner missing. <laughs> missing. And I think this is about the time we realized that Skinner wasn't the one that stole all that stuff. Yeah. It was actually Gray that mm-hmm. stole all this stuff for M mm-hmm. Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Dun dun dun. Yeah. It's Moriarty. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> right here we get to first showdown between the Phantom and Quartermain. Yeah. Is Quartermain in any place in your mind okay. capable of bringing down Moriarty at the Phantom or the Phantom? I would say yes, just because the Phantom's portrayed as a buffoon <laughs> right like he's put this team together he shows up at the library he's showing up at places like where these people are he makes a ruse at this venice thing just to be why would you make a ruse and tell the people to go there to squash your plans i don't know maybe we missed something but i'm not gonna watch it again to try no, to figure it did, out we didn't miss anything like he keeps telling them to show up at the places where he's gonna be at that that's a bad villain. i wouldn't want the heroes to be where i'm robbing Tell the cops what bank you're going to rob two hours before you rob yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to be there in two. Send the authorities. That, that's that's what he says. So to answer your question, yeah, I think Quarterman could take this guy because he's not using his brains as Moriarty. So at least we have that. Mm-hmm. A reasonable protagonist-antagonist <clears throat> showdown. So we're going to... So it all goes kaput. We get back on the boat. The movie or the, the planet? Yeah, bo- both. Yeah, both. And we get back on the boat, the Nautilus, to spend another 30 minutes, it seems like. Because then these bombs go off that, I guess, Dorian Gray set up on the on the ship. Which doesn't make sense anyway, because if they were in Venice and they were going to be blown up in Venice, why would you blow up the boat too? I, right, just shaking your head. I don't know either. It's another action bit. Just to show some explosions. It's a Tide's action bit this time. Okay, so does this work for you? Hyde uh, draining the mm-hmm. the tanks so the ship can resubmerge. I guess the hide that they set up to be the brute. That's at least what I that's what I say too. At least we're finally seeing one of the strengths of the character used for the betterment of the team. I guess I would like to see more out of Hyde's character, more conflict with his kind of inner self. It seems like when he does become Mr. Hyde, he has pretty good control over it. Like, like remember in that first Hulk when Hulk gets unleashed on the Hell Carrier, and it's kind of like actually like a like a big deal. Like they can't control this guy, Thor, all of them, and he ends up like wrecking a lot of the ship. It'd been interesting to see something like that. Where like this person who's supposed to be uh, a helpful member of the team is actually more of a hindrance than anything when he's in that form. Mm-hmm. He's very cooperative in that state. Right. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, he helps him out of a jam. And then, so then, yeah, Dorian Gray's stowed away on like one of the escape pods and they're tracking it to some remote place in the Arctic. And then I don't know when this was said. Maybe this was when I went to the bathroom or whatnot. But uh, Griffin, or not Griffin, Skinner. Skinner, I guess, stowed away on the right because he got there ahead of them and scouted out the location for them. Right. So he couldn't stow away and then stow off to tell them what the plan were. He just kind of followed along. No, you didn't miss anything. Okay, that's what happened. Okay. So now it's the final stage. It's this kind of. Stronghold of stronghold, Moriarty. Yeah, mountain base, 
ice base where he's building his tanks and armor and his like armor his armor army right with the serum from the dna of the characters on the lxg to make the soldiers to go in there okay i missed that complete that that part completely it's like two lines yeah we could watch it again. If you <laughs> watch it again. <laughs> I think I've had my life quota for this, which yeah. I, I thought this film was on Hulu and it wasn't, so I had to rent this. One oh man, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> had to re- I had to rent all three of these movies. Oh. But so I guess yeah, we're getting towards the climax. We got to stop Moriarty and his grand scheme of global takeover, which is just going so poorly in my opinion. At least he has Dorian Gray, who they've made some kind of deal. Help me, so and I'll give you back your. Your painting. Your portrait. So I guess Moriarty stole it from him and has some leverage over him. Uh, leverage. To, to be, see a movie yeah, about that? Yeah, to be a part of his plan. Right. What do you think of this this kind of hodgepodge of a finale? I mean, we get to see more of the character's exhibit of what's been shown to us. More swashbuckling, more gun gunplay. At least Skinner's able to help out a little bit, but then gets burnt to a crisp. I guess for me, would you say this was like one hour and 40 minutes? Is that what 45? you said? Okay, so 105 minutes. At this point, I'm already starting to suffer from a little bit of exhaustion and a little bit of boredom. So I would say at least we're moving to a conclusion because <laughs> maybe I'm not the only one that's suffering from the same things. We have just... Sure, sure non-logical sort of inconsequential action bit after action bit with the ridiculous villains plot blah blah we already covered all that blah 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 it's exhausting at this point i'm trying hard to hear what this character is saying behind the gunfire and in a schlocky one-liner way that's written like garbage so it's it's struggled the Mm -hmm. the weight of this movie i'm feeling the weight of this movie at this point that's that's well said and at least we get to the stronghold and we know we're moving to <clears throat> an ending. Here's one other part <laughs> that's kind of working. At least they pair the teams off with capable villains. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Mina gets to score off against Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, Skinner kind of shows up and sort of is the sacrificial scapegoat, although that's going to be sort of destroyed because of, although burned to a crisp, he seems fine a few minutes later. Mm-hmm. Um, Quartermain and Moriarty are face to face. Hyde is kind of found a friend to run with in Nemo for a few minutes, and they're taking on Ooh. one of the soldiers that's drank the entire formula, the Hyde, the entire Hyde formula, and has turned into an even more ridiculous looking version of a hulking Hyde Red, thing. Red Hulk, kinda, <laughs> kinda, yeah, disformed Red Hulk. So, I mean, at least we have the people that are in places battling against like an adversarial foe that fits their ability. That's all I can say. And we're almost done. Yeah. Thank I would, God. Yeah. I would say it's not, it's not necessarily, I wouldn't call it like bad, like Battlefield Earth kind of bad. It's just so uninteresting. Right. And I don't know what's worse. I don't think it's uninteresting because we haven't, we haven't had the time to give a damn about any of these characters because not only have they not chosen to develop it. Mm-hmm. We've just been inundated with nonsense. I don't even know if there's any like real stakes at play. <laughs> right. The only thing that's a little bit familiar is to me is the gray and mean a bit. Yeah. And I don't even know what the backstory on gray and mean is, but there's a clear... nice to have some backstory. Why not? Yeah. 
I mean, they took the time to do it as we're shooting the buoys in the water with Tom Sawyer, and no one cares about Tom Sawyer in this film. Mm-hmm. For all the characters that we've banged on, and like we care so little about him, we haven't given him like five sentences. Yeah, because <laughs> he's stupid. He's like that is Agent, pointless. Agent Tom Sawyer. <laughs> he needed some rush music to introduce himself when he showed up on screen. <laughs> so I, I, that's a long answer to your question. At least we're nearing a conclusion. <laughs> so the final uh, fisticuffs between Moriarty and Quartermain, uh, Quartermain's dealt the knife to the back. Well, it was set up earlier that now, yeah, Tom Sawyer has to take the final shot on Moriarty as he runs out into the Arctic to his little uh, escape pod. <laughs> and you were like, just shoot him already. <laughs> it's like a minute setup of him, like, like looking at him and like lining up his shot to shoot him to sh- dump the super soldier serum into the ice into the water. I always pay close attention to anyone who dies in film by being stabbed in the back for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And Quartermain gets stabbed in the back in this by Moriarty. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure why. We know he's a traitor. Wouldn't it be a little bit more appropriate if he stabbed him stabbed him in the stomach? Like Sean Connery is really good if anyone's ever seen the Untouchables mm-hmm. at prolongingly dying death sequences oh, yeah that's that yeah <laughs> malone's death in the untouchables after taking more bullets than bonnie and clyde took collectively yeah that, that from fucking frank nitty yeah that that's a yeah <laughs> frank nitty frank nitty what was that billy drago billy drago mm-hmm. yeah that's that that's he's dying for like minutes bleeding hours every orifice he's been shot by seventy thousand bullets but he's got to get the call box key to um elliot ness yeah so, so and then and so turn that in this one he gets stabbed in the back and dies. So as Sawyer is trying to sight Moriarty as he's running away, take your time. Although I, because I've got plenty of it as I'm dying, even though it's fleeting. Mm-hmm. And we get Tom Sawyer's claiming of the mantle that Quartermain is about to pass over. I guess I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't want to watch another Alan Quartermain as Tom Sawyer. Let Tom Sawyer be Tom. Tom Sawyer should have been the con man in this film. Yeah. Because that's kind of what Tom Sawyer... I know you never finished the book. <laughs> I, never, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> but it's a more appropriate character yeah, that seems, arc for him. That seems better. So from the tower window, as Moriarty's running away, he cites him for about seven minutes and then finally fires the shot that rings true and down goes Moriarty. And then we get uh, like... I hate these shots in, in film too. And I, I just can't imagine like the screen direction, like that day filming. So you get this like long shot of dead Connery right there. And then the direction to Shane West is Tom Sawyer is okay. He's just died. You need to like honor him and be dejected in, in the same way. <laughs> so he like puts the gun down and uses it as a cane with one hand and then just dips his head. Like, that's the screen direction, and then uh, that's the shot. Like, I can't stand that. Like, mm-hmm. lamenting the death of a fallen one. Like, just get out of the scene. Like, we don't need to see that. Right. Because we're going to lament him in the very next scene. Which is another the most bizarre <laughs> scene in the whole damn movie. <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, yeah, the first bizarre element. So the, all the league shows up for Alan Quartermain's uh, funeral in, out back in Africa. He buried next to his son. <laughs> for whatever reason, Mina Harker is vibrant in the sunlight when that's like the antithesis of how vampires operate. I had never, I never realized that, but yeah, it's like a full summer African day. 
Right, there's not a drop of shade to be found. Yeah, it's just like barreling on her, and no, fine, she's she's good. Right. And then, yeah, it, it sounds like Nemo wants to, like, re-up for, like, another type of mission of sorts for LXG2, which, thank goodness that there's probably not a second one of these. And then this shaman, this, like, witch doctor shaman guy is doing, like... From a, a Rudyard Kipling novel? Yeah, maybe. It'd be cool if it was told to us. Yeah. So he just he just generic shaman. <laughs> generic medicine. Yeah, generic medicine. <laughs> At man. the graveside with I, a vampire. There was I was gonna make a joke to you because Quartermain says he's like, I I met a witch doctor because I saved an entire village. I was like, well, I was like, was it uh uh not John Houston, but his dad. Was it Walter Houston? Was it Walter Houston and uh Sierra Madre where he like moved your arms back and forth and he cured your drowning? Right, exactly. <laughs> That's one of the best scenes in film just because of how bizarre it is. Yes. Like to me that that film's a, a pretty straight shooting film, but then you get this really somber scene of people crying and like he does this thing and <laughs> brings this boy back saves from the, brink. the boy. <laughs> where was he in Frankenstein, damn it? I know. And so we get that, he get this kind of dance that he's kind of doing something and the clouds get dark and the storm's coming and the gun's shaking. And we're just like, is he resurrecting Quartermate? Like what would have been good is if the gun like shot, like shot off. Well, at this point, or carry it and have her, his hand come up out of the grave and grab the gun. No, we get neither of those. It just cuts to black. <laughs> Lightning and like the gun shaking. It's kind of like the Superman resurrection bit with the stuff on his coffin in just oh League. my it's exactly like that which that's I, just that's i guess we're happy that Quartermain's coming back from the grave <laughs> are we i are exactly <laughs> <For> part two <laughs> are we are, are we okay mm. let's talk about some of just and then we'll just write this thing and get out of here okay uh yeah, so notoriously, yeah, it's Sean Connery's last film he passed on the architect role in the matrix reloaded which that's probably a good decision Really, to Fishburne? No, no, no. The architect is, yeah, that's Morpheus. In The Matrix oh, Reloaded, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. that whole bit where Neo goes to visit the architect of The Matrix. That, right, right, in the Merovingian. Oh, right. my God. And that scene goes on for what seems like hours. You know what? To that, though, <laughs> to Monica Bellucci. God bless Monica <laughs> Bellucci. The Monica Bellucci saves The Matrix Reloaded? Oh. That's a long-winded movie. Okay, so he passed on. Then he passed on the role of Gandalf for Lord of the Rings, which <clears throat> I think they had negotiated a pretty good deal from because he was going to get some type of back end on the profits. The rumor is he would have walked home with four hundred and fifty million dollars for his participation in that film. Oh my goodness! So he, this is a man who really was done, Jesse. So he yeah he passed on that to do this film, mm -hmm. and you can tell just kind of watching him just in in the scenes. He's not he's not like he must be like mid seventies at this point. He just doesn't look like he has it in him anymore. And I can't blame the guy because, like, this script is just so wooden with just unemotional people. And then the director, I guess, just couldn't wrangle it in either because him and Connery just went at it. Like, There's many stories of that happening, though. Mm -hmm. Sean Connery has gotten crossways just about everybody on Earth save Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And it's funny you mentioned Anthony Hopkins to take over for him. Because that's the story that if you can get a sober Anthony Hopkins, he's only slightly more workable with than the drunk Anthony Hopkins that's on set loaded all the time. Makes you yearn for the days of Robert Shaw. <laughs> right? Do, do we? You know what I mean? This is my favorite uh, quote. It says, the clashes between director and Connery were a sight to behold. Um, the director, Stephen Norrington, which I said he made Blade, helped kind of get Marvel films 
to some point of Hollywood stardom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he didn't come to the premiere. And when Connery was asked, he said, uh, He didn't even go to the premiere of his own film. No, he didn't. And they oh. asked Connery, like, where's the director? He's like, I don't know. Check the local asylum. <laughs> <laughs> That isn't just a perfect summation of like what it was probably like to make this movie. It was it was rushed for a summer release date when they wanted to have it come out in like November. The effects were kind of thrown together at the last. You can totally tell. Yeah. It's just kind of just thrown together, and you have clashes like that. And both these men never made another film. Like wow, I think that's more of a legacy than anything else. Like this is a movie that forced an actor to like. He just said, "I'm this this confirm." I'd been thinking about it. This completed my decision. I know you love the Lord of the Rings stuff. Oh, yeah. And Ian McKellen's a great Gandalf. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Would you have been okay with Sean Connery? I probably would have been okay. Yeah. Uh, Ian McKellen's terrific in that in that For part. Sure. Uh, yeah. But he, he didn't take because he didn't understand it. Like So I don't know if he's, if he's going through some forms of dementia at this period in his life where he's just not getting a lot of film ideas. But visually, he would have looked good as Gandalf. Like, he's got that look. Agreed. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah. And I have to applaud him for at least saying, "We, I made this. It was, I've had enough of Hollywood and I'm I'm done. So many. Really- yeah, let's applaud that, yeah. man. Everything has a lifespan, brother. Everything. Tom Brady. <laughs> Up to that. <laughs> Philip Rivers. Uh, yeah, like to, to know when the time's right to just walk away. Like to me, Ridley Scott should have done this 10 years ago. It's just kind of just you got to know when your time's up to just kind of stop making. And at this point, I don't, Connery, what does he have left to prove? Like nothing. He's made like fifty movies more probably. He's one of the most iconic characters of all time. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, and he's and he and he's Sir Sean Connery. Sean Connery. He's right. knighted. Dude, you're you're royally set up for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think he realized that. So, amen to that. But I don't know what Stephen. This I guess this making this was just so traumatic for him that he's just like I don't want to make film anymore. Yeah. That's weird. It is weird. Yeah. But maybe you just, maybe you lose the the passion for it too. Maybe this is something just so potent that it just, it just kills it for you. Don't you think that this movie had studio hands all oh, over it? Yeah. So I could see the frustration of studio hands all over what's a pretty solid project or property from Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. And when it's finished, not only does it not resemble mostly what Alan Moore thematically or story had crafted but it's not even your vision or your interpretation like it's three offs and maybe you've received some compensation but you have worked for every penny of that and i gotta tell you if both these guys said i don't want any more and this is the reason why i actually wouldn't blame either one of them this movie doesn't suck because it's got bad direction or this movie doesn't suck because Sean Connery is over the top or singularly over the top in a wooden way that he could be as elder statesman as the sage. Yeah. This movie sucks on high because it never <laughs> had a chance to get out of the starting blocks because the story is so monumentally that's, bad. That's fair. So maybe you just say, I, I don't want to go through that anymore. Sure. There had to have been. So Sean, Re- Sean Connery's in a bad mood. Yeah. He and the director aren't getting along. Alan Moore's over here saying, I don't know why I sold this property. They're bastardizing everything, which is Alan Moore about everything that he's ever written. Like he is so pretentious, but it's his stuff. And then Fox is like, you got to get it out by July. And then it's rushed. And then all they want is to resurrect Alan Quartermain from the grave at the end. So there's the potential full sequel going forward. I don't blame him either. Yeah. Man. <laughs> I don't blame him. I walk away too. Enough's enough. 
Interesting. Oh, Matt, do you have a favorite tasting note of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Was there something that you, like a scene, a particular scene that maybe stood out to you? There's a couple moments that are interesting. So the Dorian Gray and Mina seduction sequence with her blood, which doesn't really make sense with the vampire, but is remotely intriguing. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted more with that. And how far would he be willing to go with Mina? And can you actually vamp a man who doesn't age? There's, there's some stuff to play with there. That was at least <laughs> appealing to me in a cerebral way. Okay. And then I did think the only time that the character's strengths were used effectively in this movie <clears throat> is when Hyde goes below deck to pull those two levers to get the Nautilus to resubmerge from its submarine state as it's taking on water. Mm -hmm. That's it. <laughs> That's it. How about you? I kind of like that first little kind of uh, library shootout. The VFW? No, no, the no. Elks Club? The Club? No, this is the one in London. It's Dorian Gray's pad. Oh, yeah. That's all right, but what ruins it is the villain showing up saying, I'm here to tell you not to go through with your plan. I was like, dude, you just set these guys up to team up. Like, why are you... But that's that's bad. And then it's just all the everyone's kind of skill set in that is either shoot or use swords. And it's just that none of that's interesting. Like, so I think presentation wise that the, they tried really hard to make this look. And I like when like books get shut, like the, the flurry of like the paper, like that's a, like a good backdrop for an action scene. But that, that's probably about it. Yeah, that's fair. Everything else is just too busy. Yeah, too busy with lip gloss. Yeah. Like you're just being, you're just toiling in three feet. You're, you're in the kiddie pool. Yeah. I also like uh, the Moriarty's kind of those armor guys that look like kind of like pseudo Iron Men, like in the cave. I thought those were pretty interesting, but then it reminded me a lot of like kind of like uh, the first Avenger, uh, like Red Skulls kind of army guys too, because they, they had flame things. I don't know. Maybe Marvel ripped off this movie and we just don't know. It. Might have. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Feige has his chart of like, uh, <laughs> Alex yeah, he has his chart of like what he's planning and we're going to do Shang-Chi and then we're going to do the, the new X-Men and Fantastic Four. And then like above all that is just like a poster of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's like, this is the blueprint. Every, the key to our success. Hashtag how not to suck. Is this movie. Oh no, I'm just going to take these elements and make them good. Do you want to see Shang-Chi? Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I, we haven't seen like a Kung Fu element. They could have had that with Iron Fist. But oh god! They pissed that away. But no, if, like if they did like kind of like a cool thing, like like an Enter the Dragon type yeah. of like dirty hairy thing with Shang Chi, and that's supposed to have the real Mandarin in it, because it's mm. it's they called the Ten Rings of it's Shang Chi and the Ten, Ten Rings, Rings of, of, of something. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm on board with with that. So anyway, yeah, that's yeah. There's just a lot of parallels between some of the stuff in in this and that. This is just this and Van Helsing are just so generic for me. They're just so, and Van Helsing has a lot of potential, but it's just, it's just all just pissed away. You know what it's like for me? It's like being in a kiddie pool depth of water that has the expanse of the ocean and being bombarded with wave after wave of shallow, never ending nothing. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Like I'm in the ocean. It's about two and a half feet deep. 
and it's just wave after wave pelting me that they're not big enough because there's not enough momentum in that depth of water to hurt me, Mm -hmm. but it's never going to end and I'm never going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to drown. I can't swim. I'm just wading water and nothing. That's how I feel about this. (laughs) Is there an scene of the film where we need to kind of take a shot and, 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 and drink to kind of just wash away our sorrows? Yeah, the end, man. Yeah, the end. <laughs> the, are we both in agreement yeah, on the end? The end's ridiculous. We both. Like, it's been a long time, Jesse. I forgot all about that end. Yeah, and we both looked at each other and went like, "What? The, like he's coming back? Hey, what are they trying to do? B, why aren't they showing to this? C, why is Mina in direct sunlight? And who is this witch doctor? I don't know. <sighs> yeah, yeah. The, that's and, the oh my god yeah, moment. Yeah, that that seems but the, the, that was it was really strange. They recast Quartermain with young Tom Sawyer for the purpose of the youth movement, and then pose the threat that we may bring back Quartermain. I hope he's the next villain, even though there's a million other ones you could choose from. The guy from the Crucible is it Father Paris? Mm. Think of that as like a religious <laughs> zealot leading a like a. A cult. Yeah, that could be interesting. There's a lot of ways they could go with classic literature villains, and we're going to resurrect Quartermain as a bad guy. Is there a master distiller on this film? No. (laughs) There isn't. No. Not even can we give... We could at least maybe give some credit to Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill for... I I think conceptually, there's, there's something here. There's something to this idea. And because I've never delved into the knowledge, I don't so your master distiller is the source material. Yes, <laughs> that's a reach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll give it to you. My, my master distiller is the idea of what this could have been. Well, and, and is if you actually re- go back and read it, mm-hmm. it's a good read. Yeah, have you no, ever read I it? I haven't. No. That's, oh, you should. It's that's good. What, that's why I was saying. I was like, I don't know if a lot of this transferred over uh, the way that they they intended it. So. My problem with that is, although the source material is so good, Alan Moore is such a prick. Like, you listen to him, and he hashtag hater on high. He's such a prick. He hates everything. Well, he just, he, he really especially doesn't like the adaptations of his material. He thinks they should just be kind of like separate mediums. And well, I then s- don't sell it, Josh Olson. And Yeah, and I say <laughs> Josh Olson. I know why they want to make stuff out of his, because it's in the comic community, a lot of his stuff is well-regarded, Killing Joke and Watchmen and whatnot. But, yeah, he's a yeah, very temperamental individual. And, and it doesn't help the way he looks, because he looks like, like he got struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's just such a bitter man. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah okay and it's not like he's saying like like his his stuff saying like don't do that or don't adapt this has any impact on like the film because he's not the one adapting it like it's just like they just have to listen to that while they're making the film alan moore found a 10-year period where he was really effective who the hell is alan moore today yeah i can't right Mm -hmm. submerged in his own wallowing and self-pity sure in my ocean of bullshit that's the kiddie pool of waves of nothing, mm-hmm. he's right there next to me wallowing in his own self-misery, drowning in it. <laughs> he's with you. You're sharing the same uh, life preserver. Ugh. How are you uh, going to rate and grade the league LXG? Rock gut, well, call single barrel or top shelf? Okay, so this is weird. As much as we've been super hard on this film, it's easily the most enjoyable of the three we've done sure. by miles. So I'm actually not going to give this rock gut. I'm going to give this well minus. <laughs> um, 
maybe in a first time viewing in a nice cool theater with a good bag of popcorn and you know a, a happy disposition I probably would be okay with this movie enough one time through. Are you getting up to refill your popcorn like halfway through? Yeah, I mean, if I have to get I up pr- and go to the bathroom and play a video game in the middle or something, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about missing anything. Yeah, that's a sign. Um, but I probably would have walked out of Battlefield Earth and walked out of... Uh, the Happening? Even though I didn't. Yeah. Um, I would have, yeah. Oh, that's a sign, though. Like, and when, when I you typically, once the film starts, I'm usually present in there i don't get up to go get popcorn or go to the bathroom i hold it make no mistake this is a bad film yeah but it's not in the annals of all time no, 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 bad. No, no. it's bad yeah but it's not the room or uh, serenity or you know any sure. of the last two weeks sure so well minus yeah but which like, is not a vote of confidence yeah it's, that's not good where but, are you at but like half yeah probably probably the same because yeah because some of the sequences they're like i said it's not terribly made yeah and i don't I don't necessarily think the acting's entirely awful. It's not like Mark Wahlberg last week. <laughs> I think Sean Connery's more than capable. He just doesn't want to be here making this film. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's a great idea that's just not executed to its full potential. And to me, that's that's a crying shame. That's like the purge all over again. So, right. yeah, well minus. It's not as bad as the last two weeks, but I don't even know if I'd ever really want to watch this ever again. No. Would you see LXG2 if they ever made it? Or they should just reboot this whole thing if they want to do it. Well, that was in discussion Yeah, to do LXG2. Um, if they kept it to the source material, I probably would want to see that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people in hell had ice water too. So what are we talking about? <laughs> so, uh, right? Um, let's. What was the line in the movie that I told you I liked? Let's not make saints out of sinners. Yeah. I like that. Who said that, Skinner? Yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna use that before he disappeared for the next 40 minutes. He's always disappeared. He's the invisible man. <laughs> it's so. Sh- um. Yeah. Would you see it? Yes. LXG two. You would. I don't know if I, I don't want two. I don't, don't continue on this. Just if you're gonna do it again, just do clean slate. Yeah. And add Sherlock Holmes to the lineup. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty interesting. Well, let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. I don't think there's even more of a sign than just kind of just a palatable film than just generic score. Yeah. You humming that on the way to the parking lot? No, it's just like... Do-do-do-do-do. That's something for you because that's March-like and you like marches and that's bad. But there's no there's, there's no theme in there. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. That's just that's just music, which, hey, get me wrong. I like, I like a good score, but there's not a good score. Yeah, it's not. Play it again. That is so nondescript. It could be the emergence of Nemo's army to the closing credits. That's how nondescript that is in this film. That could be the bad guys theme for all we know. Right. That that is just that is the equivalent of white noise as music. What they should have done is when the team kind of assembles for the first time in the library shootout aftermath, they should have played like a variation on that theme. And then just like the rule of three, you gotta do that with music too. And you gotta get us familiar with what the the hero's call to action is. Right. Yeah, bad job. That's <laughs> you lose two whoever wrote that. I think <laughs> that's it's, it. It yeah. goes back to Rocket. I think it's I think it's Trevor Jones. Just, and he's done some decent scores, but not this one. Not this one. 
All right, let's wrap up this um, this this cask here. Uh, you mentioned it, and you can even just use the entry you said. If they were to have a, a villain of sorts in a potential sequel, who would you like to see? I like your choices from the Crucible. Yeah, I think that that's be a, that'd be a cool choice because you get a, a natural built-in army of zealotry and followers with that. You can make them like pretty Jim Jones-like too. Yeah. Ooh, yeah so that's. That's where I'm going with that. Um, I'm going to stick with Mr. Father Paris. And that could be yeah, kind of witchy, mm-hmm. like to an extent. Because you want like a supernatural vibe, I guess, is what they were going for with this one too. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds, that sounds sounds pretty good. Think about all the themes that that plays to, like persecution and oppression and secular versus non-secular and groupthink and mob mentality. There's a lot you could play with there. Yeah. Moriarty works if there's Sherlock to match him. Yeah, there should have been. Yeah, in that first Avengers, I think Loki works as a villain because, you know, Thor's one of the members and this is his brother. So there's like a direct, like, I have, we have a stakes with Loki, but I have even more stakes with him type of an aspect. And maybe you could have that with Mina and maybe like Dracula. That wouldn't be bad. But is that too much Van Helsing? Because then, yeah, that, that didn't work too well either. But I don't know, maybe if tackled differently... Okay, so you and your, you and my, oh boy, mm-hmm. you and I are super biased in that space. Mm-hmm. As undyingly loyal Universal Monsters fans, I don't know if it's possible to have too much of that in a film. That being said, that's kind of the element that works in LXG One mm-hmm. is the Mina and Hyde and Invisible Man. Now those are all staples of really important pieces of cinematic history for me. But I don't know. Let's could there be too much? Ties to the Universal Monster. It can never be too many ties. I, right. to the I, Universal I think, monster. No, I don't think there is. Yeah. So, yeah, let's see LXG2 with either one of those scenarios. What about the, um, oh my gosh, this is bad, Jesse. What's the gypsy mom's name in The Wolfman? Um, Bella Lugosi's mom. The, Isn't it? That's not Bella. I think that's his name. Maria Oshpinskara is the actress's name. a character <laughs> along that that yeah. brings along with her a plague, and I'm doing scare quotes around plague, of whatever lycanthropy she brings to a community, and they all start to turn. That could be cool. I, that's better than this. I like, and, and you know, God, here it is. How do you screw up Moriarty? Yeah. Well, this movie shows you how. Mm-hmm. Turn in Brawny instead of Brainy. Here, here's, here it is for everybody that's like, on this whole Sherlock Holmes thing is not my cup of tea. It's why the Riddler would never take on Superman. That's this film. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's no contest. Uh, there's a the film that I think tried to do what, what this does and have globetrotting, swashbuckling adventure with a bit of a supernatural twinge that I actually really like is that first... Uh, Brendan Fraser Mummy from 1999. I kind of like that movie. And it kind of tackles a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. With Rachel Rachel Weiss. And yeah, I, I'm down with that. But like, at least that has like a fun element to it. Like this tries to be fun, but it's just, you're just, you're kind of miserable watching it. It's, 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 it's a slog, we said. National Treasure, the Nicolas Cage oh, Masonic yeah, yeah, is a fun version of this movie that kind of makes sense. Yeah, there you go. There's another good example. Yeah. It's doable. And it's really not that hard. And as for as much as you chagrined, but Pirates of the Caribbean and Curse of the Black Pearl kind of does the same thing. That's fair. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So there you go. 
the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it puts the capper uh, whiskey barrel lid on this horrendous cask. At least the drinks were good this time. Well, you brought up another possible great villain, Blackbeard. Yeah, Blackbeard the pirate, yeah. I think Nemo could be a good villain too, but he's obviously one of your heroes. Ahab, Moby Dick. But then we're just on the seas the whole time and no one wants to make Waterworld. This is so, so bad, Jesse. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this. Hmm. Uh, Treasure Island, is it Long John? Who's the... That's I thought that was Blackbeard. Is that Blackbeard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Long John Silver's in that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that could be interesting. I'm not as well versed in like a lot of classic literature, primarily just because like... We're reading comic books. <laughs> we're reading comic books. Do that. Exactly. I got your Brave New World right here. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's the death of Gwen Stacy. It's <laughs> the death of Gwen Stacy. All right, that puts... That's the capper on this one. So we're going to reboot. And we're going to come at you with, I think, a much better cask that we've kind of discussed. So we have to wait for Tenet a little bit more. So Go ahead and tell them what you told me this morning. Yeah, I think yeah, it's like almost like in September now. It's like August 31st. So let's talk about that just for one second. Yeah. What's important, I think, to remember in these times of there's nothing new coming out except what's maybe streamed or on the shelves or something like that. Mm-hmm. When film comes back to the theater it needs to hit a home run because yeah. if something comes out, like let's say Tenet comes out and it limps across the finish line because everyone's too scared to go to the theater. Mm-hmm. It does maybe irreversible harm to the box office, to the box office viewing experience. It could. Yeah. So as frustrating as this is, and I know everyone has different levels of frustration in what we're in right now, mm-hmm. protecting that industry maybe is of tantamount importance to me even more so than professional sports. Sure. Oh, yeah. I love going to the movie theater. It's like my second home. It might be my like second favorite thing in the whole world. Yeah. Eh, maybe not that high, but it's certainly in the top it's five. It's really high, yeah. And and I kind of want it to be Tenant just because that's spec, original, big budget. And we need more of that and less of like, redoing Mulan and a sequel to this or a sequel to that. If, if that came out original spec high concept and it, and it does really well, like I think we, we might start going in a different direction. And if it's something, if like it's whatever opens up as some, whatever sequel and you're right and it bombs, well, hell I'll just watch whatever I have on television. There's something to the shared experience that we all go through in the theater together mm-hmm. from horror to comedy and the momentum that the audience generates in the audience viewing members. Yeah. That's precious. We need to hold on to that and protect it. And if that means we bump tenant two more weeks or another month, does it even matter at this point? No. We haven't seen anything new since <laughs> Invisible <Bloodshot>. Invisible Man. <laughs> Was that the last new movie we could, pretty damn close? Mm-hmm. That's probably I think the, I think the last new movie I saw in the theater was Onward. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last new thing we discussed was Invisible Man. Which is probably still my favorite thing I've probably seen all year. It's really good. Really good. Terrific film. All right, so we're going to s- stick with some oldies but goodies. But yeah. being that we're still in quarantine and sequestering ourselves, what better than a film cast that is kind of built around films that do the exact same thing? Yeah. This lineup is pretty awesome. Amen. So I think we're, we'll start with, let's start with this one first, Matt. So from 1976, I believe... Get to talk about the man again, Mr. JC. You know how much of an influence he, he has on me. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. This was kind of like his first post, other than Dark Star, uh, foray into filmmaking before Halloween. 
and talk about a film that was made for next to nothing. That's a terrific idea. Yeah. Terrific. All kind of primarily set within this police station. JC is John Carpenter, not James Cameron for all of you or Jesus Christ Christ. for all of you out there. Um, Yeah. And you know, they remade this movie with Ethan Hawke and what? Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Oh, four. Yeah. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. About that. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to watch this with you. Mm -hmm. I've seen it um, a while ago, so it'll be almost like a fresh view for me. I can't wait to watch this with you. This is going to be, we are both, I already can tell you right now, we're both going to have the same, oh my God, I can't believe they did that moment. Because there's a scene in this film and I can't believe they went there. It's shocking, but like the music rocks, the idea is great. We get uh, Tony Burton, uh, Apollo Creed's trainers, like one of the convicts in in yeah. in the station in this. And Austin Stoker, Jorge. <laughs> oh, Larry! I know. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Cheers friend. to Larry. Yeah, well, we could talk about that a little bit next week, but yeah, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. We get to talk about yeah, real low budget, single location filmmaking. This is Hollywood gold if you can get it, guys. Exactly. And gals. The films coming after that are. Equally impressive. No, they're just, they're just as impressive. As we forced a bad cast down everybody's throat this last week with good liquor and not purple feet um, or grape feet, mm-hmm. we're going three pretty slam dunk winners here. Oh, I think yeah. it's we're let, we're single barrel to top shelf here already off the bat, aren't we? Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah. A chance for people because I've been revisiting a lot of like older films during this time and just kind of checking stuff out. And there's just a lot of stuff out there that's just, it's worth its weight in gold of why it's, why it's really good. So yeah, I think we're going to talk about some of those. So other than the films that we've talked about that you haven't seen on the show, um, any new viewing recommendations? I think we both have the same one maybe for this week for everybody. I saw recently, I saw a film that I just recently got this box set. It's this, uh, Al Adamson was, kind of a Roger Corman of sorts in the seventies, but he made like D list movies. Talk about like real, like exploitation grindhouse like women in per chains and like, uh, like Kung Fu, like, uh, with, a not Jim Brown. Oh my God. What's that guy's name? He was in enter the dragon. Oh, the, the, the white guy. No, the black guy. Um, not Jim. I'm going to, I got Jim Kelly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Mar- okay. Martial artist. He made a lot of like, uh, like martial arts films with him at the helm. So think of that, like kind of CD New York, 42nd street cinema. And they're not good. <laughs> they're terrible movies. They're social. like think of Russ Tamblin and John Carradine and Lon Chaney Jr. Like at the end of their careers, Oof. like trying to like make these films. But what's in this box set that I did watch is a documentary on the guy. It's called blood and flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson. And I highly recommend this because this man in 1995 was murdered by one of his close friends and then buried and uh, in his house. And then it was a, there was a cement slab put over that. So this man that made like all these trashy horror films like met his like this ghastly death like and just like buried in his house and no one knew where he was at. Wow, sounds like it's inspiring the uh, Dave Bliss led Baylor Bears basketball element of the late nineties. Uh-huh. It was really it it was a really interesting to like look at the man and how he made films just so on the cheap and so quickly, but then he just met this like crazy crazy end. The one that I've come to in the last couple of days actually that mm-hmm. I plan to watch this week, the highly recommended but yet unseen by me, so maybe we can all do it together. Ryan Nation is the Outpost. It's a war film. Uh, Eastwood's sons in that with Scott Eastwood. Is that mm-hmm, his name? Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else recognizable, but a war film that looks 
pretty good and superbly reviewed by just about everyone that I've read. So that's number one on my list this cool. week after Perry Mason. After Perry Mason. Do Perry Mason. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. Well, well, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Let's get out of this cask and into greener pastures. Indeed. I got to get going. I got to go rig up something on the Nautilus there. Maybe not to tread water for 40 straight minutes. We've had a couple glasses of Weller, so I'm afraid I might morph into something if we don't get out of here pretty soon in a hideaway. <laughs> in a hideaway. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate it. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is property of 20th Century Fox, International Production Company, JD Productions, and Angry Films. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Don't be afraid. Who says I'm afraid? You stink of fear! Quite the pilot trick. You wait to see my next one.